You may see me make a lot of food in the microwave. I'm using the Any Day. We're very closely with that team. It is easily one of the most essential cooking utensils, vessels in my kitchen and should be your kitchen as well, whether you're a seasoned home cook or you're just a novice and this is your first time cooking. Or you just like to reheat leftovers. Or you just like to store food because it's a great container of food. It's easy to clean. We've cleaned them a thousand times and we microwave them after leftovers have been frozen. We've worked on the IO collection with the Any Day team, which is Matt Black. Build your empire stackable microwave safe cookware today. Get 10% off code Dave. I get a lot of hate. I get a lot of jokes thrown my way for the microwave. But again, if you do your homework, I think it's something that you should not make fun of, but really embrace as a tool in your kitchen. And if you have kids, it's an amazing tool. If you are pressed for time, it's an amazing tool. If you're trying to watch what you eat, it's an amazing thing because you don't have to introduce any fats or oils. It's the most effective, energy-efficient way to steam your food. So if the microwave was coming out today, and let's just say Apple made it, and it was called the the air oven, right? Everyone would fucking buy it, and everyone would talk about it. So you just got to ask yourself, is it just marketing, or is it actually something that you're scared of, or you want to make fun of? I just don't get it. And if you are going to embrace the microwave, which is a steamer in so many ways, you should use it any day. Get 10% off, promo code Dave. Go to cookanyday.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Development Media. Thank you a lot, Tango. As always, uh, if you see me wearing the same clothes or if you're just listening to this, we just had Chrissy Yang leave. Uh, we're doing a double as we're trying to bank up some podcasts uh, because we have a lot of things going on, one of which is the Hulu show on Freeform, streaming on Hulu. Chrissy and Dave eat out with the great Joel Kim Booster. And we have every Tuesday for a few weeks, on Netflix at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Dinner Time Live with David Chang, myself, where I'm cooking live and uh, trying not to cut myself or burn myself and make terrible food and having pleasant conversations with some terrific guests. So there's been a lot of live TV talk, a ton. When I talk to people that make unscripted or documentary TV or produce, they almost inevitably say they never like to watch it because it's the same thing with me. When I go to a restaurant, or anything that has food, I can't turn my brain off. So they just sort of unplug and watch oftentimes really bad scripted TV. We're going to do a four things. You don't want to do a four things here and take a break from all the live TV talk and ask and talk about what are my top episodic scripted TV Mount Rushmore's. What four shows make the cut? Off the top of my head, I definitely have to put the wire. I have to put, because even though I can't get my wife to watch it, it's something that you can watch forever. I really believe that. And I do believe if you did put it in a time capsule in the distant future, people would get a good idea what inner city life was like in America. And I think David Simon created a masterpiece. It it really is just one of the most engaging TV shows I've ever been part of to be able to like, like, like watch week to week when it was going on. And I remember that was like the only, the only thing I would DVR when I was really working a lot, uh, getting the restaurants open back in the day. And that was like sort of saved my sanity, right? Because it, it gave me some kind of cadence that I could look forward to when it came out. And if you haven't seen The Wire, it is that good. Season one, a lot of people don't like season two, but I love season two. A lot of people love season three as the best. And I have to say it is probably one of my favorite seasons. Season four is amazing. And season five, the last season, is more about the newspaper um, industry and the journalism that goes along with it. Also very good. Again, I I love The Wire. I think that would probably be my number one show that uh, would make the cut. Two would be The Sopranos. No surprise here with any of my top four. There is nothing really innovative or novel about it, but I think I've seen The Sopranos more than any other show. I think I can rewatch that over and over and over again. Um, They purchased on my iPad and they're always downloaded. So if I'm in a situation where I just am stuck on a plane or a long trip, or if I just need to go back to something that is like a cultural hamburger for my mind, I'll go to The Sopranos because I just think it is amazing every season from the pilot. And I love the last episode. I think it took a lot of balls. I remember when it was aired, it was before social media was invented. And 
the next day, it's all water cooler topic. Everybody was talking about, did he die? Did Tony die or not? Um, and it's clear, sorry for anybody that hasn't watched it, that fucking guy died for sure. Um, I, again, I, I, I can't speak more highly about The Sopranos. Three for Mount Rushmore TV, I have to put Seinfeld on. I think those reruns are, that's just like my show. And I'd probably say that over Kirby Enthusiasm as much as I love Larry David because Seinfeld was part of my teenage years to my formative 20s. And uh, that was always there. And top four is really fucking hard. And I'd also say probably for so many other people, friends as well, for that same reason, that was just something you would always watch, right? Every Thursday night on NBC at 8 p.m. And there's so many other TV shows, but if I gave you off the top of my head, it would definitely be Wire, Sopranos. I mean, Breaking Bad was amazing. Fuck, I forgot about Mad Men. So if I had to rearrange it, I'd only put one sitcom. I'd probably keep Seinfeld. I'd push Friends out of the top four, and I'd put Mad Men in the top four because that show's fucking perfect, too. Perfect. I genuinely love Mad Men so much, and it hurts me that we just don't have anything like that on TV right now. So, yeah, those would be my top four. What about you, you know? Well, I think we shared the number one, uh, The Wire, obviously, very formative show for me. And then (laughs) this is where I kind of differ from you on the sitcom. I grew up with Arrested Development, which was a show that I uh, watched because I grew up in Orange County. And so that was like a really, everybody watched the OC. And then if you're, if you're like a rebel, you watch Arrested Development growing up. Um, so that's my number two. And I'm debating in my head right now. And I feel so bad that I can't leave the Sopranos off. But damn, is it hard to defend in 2024? Like it is. Like I was just talking to Victoria right now. I was just like, I don't know if you should watch it right now. <laughs> like it's not exactly the greatest show that holds up. But uh, yeah, it's obviously, it was one of those things. It was like a cultural event. That final episode, I just remember it being like a firestorm of controversy. Everybody was talking about it, what actually happened, and um, all the speculation about, you know, what was going to happen to Tony. But, um, and number four, let's go with Chappelle's show, which was like very formative for me and like taught me a lot about, like, I was insulated from black culture most of my, you know, life growing up in Orange County, a bunch of, a bunch of white kids. And like, that's it. It gave me a deeper look into like what being black meant to Dave Chappelle. And it actually taught me a lot about like, you know, Afrocentric culture. Like if the musical guests weren't like your run-of-the-mill, like, you know, pop hip hop artists, they were folks like Talib Kweli, uh, Common, you know, I got into some of that underground hip hop stuff during that time. So Dave Chappelle, Chappelle show probably is up there. Another one that probably isn't the most PC, but um, yeah, I, I just that was a big one for me. What about you, Victoria? Yeah, I grew up in the 90s. So a lot of those 90s sitcoms sit at the top of my mind, but I had to kind of go past that. And I was really into House um, when that was out. Oh, wow. Yeah, that show. I've never seen an episode. I've never seen an episode of Arrested Development. I feel like I've never you, seen an episode of House. I feel like you would like House. It's, there's some pretty good cases on there. Like, huh. And then also pretty close to that Grey's Anatomy. Wow. Never seen an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Really? I just know Sandra Oh was on it and they yeah. killed her off or something, right? Yeah, she she left, but she was awesome on that show. Grey's Anatomy House. And then there's a show called Insecure. just came out a few years ago on HBO. And and My Wife and Kids starring Damon Wayans. I think that was like a good family sitcom like for me growing up. So yeah, I would say those. Wow. Four unexpected. The West Wing. I don't know where I bought everything else out, but like, yeah, for me, The West Wing has to be on there. I've also never seen an episode of West Wing. I've never seen an episode of The Office. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> I swear to God. I swear to God. Yeah, The Office is my top five for sure. I love The Office. That's I've never I mean. seen it. Oh, I, I, never. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the character that everyone talks about? And they, you know, what, I don't know. Jim and Pam? Yeah. Who are? I don't even know who Jim or Pam actually are. What the fuck are you talking Who's about? Who's Jim? Dude. Is that Steve Carell? And I'm not being facetious. Uh, John Krasinski, dude. Who's Pam? Is that Rashida? No. Oh, oh my God. Rashida comes in as... Yeah, Rashida Jones' character comes in later. Who's Pam? Uh, Jenna Fisher, dude. Are you... (laughs) It's like if I talk about some awesome chef from France to somebody, and they're like, I don't know fucking who you're talking (laughs) about. Haven't you hung out with John Krasinski? Like... Literally. I, 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 but I've never. <laughs> like, hey, I don't know your most. See, I've never. Wa- I mean, I've seen him in Tom Clancy, and he's in the. What's that um, movie? The Nancy Myers movie with 
Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep. He's in that movie. He's the boyfriend of a, a, one of the daughters. It's complicated. Yeah, that's it. Okay. What else has he been in? That as it's a movie. I know he's Tom Clancy. He was in Fantastic. <laughs> he's a he's Fantastic, Mister Fantastic. Oh my! 13th hour or something like that. But I've never seen Office. And here's the deal. I'm never fucking going to. No. Yeah. You have to. I'm never going to see the West Wing. <laughs> okay, that is wrong. Bro, Aaron Sorkin, man. Oh my gosh. And it's just like a bunch of episodes of Aaron Sorkin, or Aaron Sorkin writing. Like, how can... No. One of the best writers of like our generation. What are you talking about? Aaron Sorkin? Oh my gosh. No. <laughs> The answer is no. I'm never going to watch it. And I'm going to be culturally ignorant the rest of my life. Then so be it. Wait, I've thought of Scandal. Did you ever watch Scandal? I just know that Shonda Rhimes made Scandal. Yeah, that's a good one. I've never Pregnant. seen that either. No. Uh. I think there's a, a, a many shows that I've never seen. Yeah. But then, you know what? Like, The Wire definitely was like, I couldn't watch any other cop show, serial crime show. Yeah. Here's another one that's shocking that I've never fucking seen in my life. Any law and order. Oh, I don't believe that. There's no way. No, I've never seen. No way. I've cooked for Marissa Hargitay. Mariska, whatever. I've cooked for her, but I've never seen her in the show. Yeah. Wild, huh? Yeah, that was. No lie. I've never seen it. Because is as <laughs> if you cook professionally, when do you have time to watch this shit? That's a good question. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. You know, you know what's about- happening on a Thursday night at eight o'clock? You're in the fucking weeds. <laughs> <laughs> Picking up foie gras. <laughs> I just imagine like, even if you walk past like an electronics store in New York City and there's like TVs on the wall that you would have at least like seen a little yeah, bit of it. That's it's, how. Cr- no, it's always know. like randomly on in the background somewhere. It's always on in the background somewhere. It's, that's one of those shows where like you can't even avoid it if you're trying. Like, but okay, that's that's an awesome insight. And that you DVR shows, and that's how you get to consume it, right? It's like okay, I got to save this for later, right? And what do you do about sports? Like when you're a chef, like how do you watch keep up with sports? I stopped watching sports. Oh, I mean, Sundays if I would have off, you'd watch some. And and again, when I got and I moved to an apartment, and I got DVR. Then you could DVR some games, uh-huh. but. You know, honestly, even today, I think that's translated to I don't really watch sports anymore. I watch it on social media or I'll watch the highlights, but usually I'll read ESPN. Probably the only games I watch live, even today, are NBA Finals and the Super Bowl. Not even the playoff games, though. Yeah, but even this weekend, we had playoffs. Yeah. I didn't watch because I had the kids now. Right. You know, and you know what they don't want to watch? <laughs> football. That's the only thing my son will watch is football. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. All right, we're back. We are going to conclude a master of your domain, even though I feel that many of us are going to still do it. And apologies if it became anticlimactic because we lost a lot of people that first week. Almost felt like we were storming Normandy or something because we lost a lot of lot of our troops, un- unnecessarily so, because some people just didn't care about it, unfortunately. I wouldn't say people didn't care. They Victoria. Try. I really cared. I almost passed out from hunger. That's caring, Dave. Well, no. <laughs> Passing out would have been caring. <laughs> Come on, man. Almost don't cut it. Fair, fair. Are you going to put a vegetarian on a low-carb diet? What the fuck, man? You know how fucked up that is? They, they don't have to be vegetarian. <laughs> oh, <my> God. <laughs> Caring, pa- being passionate about the mastery of domain would be, I'm going to become a meat eater this week, this month. Anything to win. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but um, not only is it dry January, and shout out to Athletic Brewing and their wonderful dry January app. And, you know, I just don't think people are drinking as much as they used to. And some of that is for good reason and some of it isn't. But we also decided to make the the wheel of constraint, the the diet that we had a couple of years ago, that challenge that was extremely useful for myself and Chris. And I think that we're sort of back on it without that technical challenge. Um, it's over because we actually have our master. And number one is Ying, Chris Ying. He's the, the heavyweight world champion. The 
domestic intercontinental champion is you know, because there's no way in how you can choose. And we'll let the voters decide. Can you allow someone, if you're on a no sugar diet, which effectively cancels out carbs altogether, right? Anything that can be... All, all food can be converted into sugar, dude. Protein gets converted into sugar. Like, come on. But it's a beer. It's a light beer. It's a beer. Five grams of carbs. Don't matter. It's a it's beer. Still, oh. It's beer. And as much as I want to shout out Athletic Brewing, I, I'm just saying, like, that challenge is dry January, not Mastery of Your Domain. So they're completely different categories here. And I just think, you know, by technicality, we have to give you know the Constellation Trophy for theoretically winning this oh year. Oh, my God. But right. you know what? I will give Chris Yang a ton of credit for doing it while practicing for the show for Dinner Time Live. Because, like, you're just surrounded by food all the time. You're smelling all the stuff that Dave's making. I would go crazy. Like, I would be screaming into a black room. You know, like, yeah, and he, and he he had a he, he totally broke down, and he had sugar. He had rice. He had noodles, and he felt terrible. It's just a rough racket. But, yeah, I, I concede. Definitely that Christine. You know, he didn't have some crutch to get him through all of this like you did. All right. I just don't know how you're going to eat chicken wings and not have some kind of beer. That's just crazy. All right. So I had those uh, chicken wings that aren't battered, just had like the double fried chicken wings with just the skin. Just saying, like, he chose a more difficult path. Listen, (laughs) you just have to accept this, folks. Chris Yang, if this was an ice skating routine, did like a quadruple flip jump and you know, just did a double axle. Leave it at that. Sucker, Second place <laughs> is me. What a surprise. Third place is Van Lathan and his ability to resurrect French fries <laughs> with the air fryer. Fourth place is Chris Bianca, which actually is a shock to me because he lasted like 72 hours. Yeah. Fifth place is Ira. Sixth place, Chen. I didn't know how, I didn't even know he was part of the challenge. Seventh place, Victoria. No surprise there. <laughs> Eighth place is Kelly Meinhardt, who didn't last two hours. Three hours, yeah. Within three hours, she drank a Coca-Cola. And Noel is too good for us. <laughs> so we crown Chris Yang, the heavyweight champion. I think that this is something we're going to continue to explore. And uh, at least for me personally, just trying to get healthier. I also am super curious about doing something where I prevent myself from tasting all these delicious things so I can actually recalibrate what delicious actually is. And I always go back to when I had to cut weight for wrestling in high school, how delicious an apple was, right? I want, I would rather have those moments of quality than have just access to like that all the time. It's like retraining my brain and maybe that's just me, but I I really do savor those moments. You remember you did that three days where you didn't eat anything, mm-hmm. and then the first thing you ate was a tomato pie pizza? Yeah. But imagine if it was like a head of broccoli. Do you think that head of broccoli yeah. would actually taste sweet? Like, yeah, it would have been delicious. Yeah. But it just so happens I love pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I do love pizza, man. Fuck. I love pizza so much. But you crank that return up to 11. Like, it was like, you could have done anything, and you chose something that actually already tasted good on its own, right? So it Yeah. Kind of like but man, it tasted so good. Oh. Once it hits the lips, <laughs> so good. Pizza, so good. All right, let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. We got an ass tape. Hey Dave, oftentimes I worry about what might happen to my kid in school, including bullying. I'm thinking of signing up 
my kid for martial arts. I remember you mentioned you did wrestling in high school. Would you ever sign Hugo uh, or Gus up for wrestling? Thanks, Jonathan D. I actually had this conversation with Bill Simmons recently because his son, Ben Simmons, the greater Ben Simmons in the world. I mean, that other Ben Simmons. What the fuck, dude? Seriously? That's that's kind of, that's a, you know, kind of player. That's for sure. And he's wrestling. My issue with high school wrestling is simply that oftentimes the season is right after football season. And in football, most players are trying to put on as much weight and muscle as humanly possible. And you are given maybe 10 to 10 days, a week tops before wrestling practice starts. And usually it's another three weeks before your first match. So you have three weeks to cut a tremendous amount of weight. At least it was for me. And I think there's a lot of malnourishment. There's a lot of malnourishment involved. And I just don't know if that's the best thing for kids. Also, I don't know if I'd let my sons play football either. That's a really tough decision. And I think also, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I think about that a lot. If they wanted to play, would I let my sons play football? I don't know. I had a lot of concussions and <laughs> when I played, no question about it, but I loved it. And it taught me so much about teamwork. It taught me so much about pushing myself to my physical limits. It also taught me to endure like extreme pain. <laughs> and it taught me this. I never really played a group sport in my life. It was always golf. So it allowed me to see what winning as a team was like. Yeah, I played youth soccer, but, you know, that's like a colony of ants. You know, if you're like six years old, (laughs) you don't do shit. So football was instrumental for me. And I got, I think, at least in my league, I got really good at it because I wanted to get good at it. And I, I probably should have played in D3 college, but I like to drink beer. And I didn't get, there's no scholarship. So I didn't see what the point was. But football to me was difficult to go into wrestling if you have to cut weight. And with growing, that that growing period for teenagers, I just think that would be problematic. I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm just my own relationship with it. So no, I don't know if I'd let my sons play football. We'll cross that bridge when we get there if they decide to play. When it comes to wrestling, I will say this. It is the hardest practice you can have in high school sports unequivocally, there is no practice harder than wrestling. If you haven't exerted yourself against another human being on the mats and try to do that for a minute, two minutes, with all of your energy trying to pin this person or to win points, it is one of the most physically exhausting things. It doesn't look like it, right? It doesn't look like it at all, but you are dead beat right? So you need to really increase your lung capacity, your endurance. You run like a motherfucker, right? So you almost have like cross country aspects because all you do is fucking run. And you do a lot of short bursts of activity as you are on the mats. Very difficult practice. At the same time, you're just not eating, you know? But I would say of all my friends and all the people that I know that high school, that were high school wrestlers, and I only wrestled for a short period compared to my friends, you know, they're tough as fucking nails. That, that is, it, it tells you a lot about somebody if they are going to cut 30 pounds, 25 pounds, normally maybe somebody's like 170, but because they don't have a 135 spot, they're going to cut all that weight to do 135 or something like that. It's just fucking hard. And I think it does build character. I don't know. That's also debatable. I don't know. This will lead into sort of where I'm going with my own kids. You know, what, what's left? Basketball and soccer, cross country swimming, golf, tennis. Maybe that's what they do. I don't know. I know if if genetics or anything, I don't think that they're going to be well endowed with hand-eye coordination with moving balls. (laughs) Like I, I, I don't have great hand-eye coordination to catch. That's what I'm trying to say. To throw and to catch, not possible. I think my ancestors moved shit (laughs) with their own body weight. Yeah. We, Moved stones, big giant stones. We didn't throw small pebbles accurately. I just don't know. Again, it's early. Maybe they can prove me wrong, but I, you know, it's early. Maybe, but I, I just don't think that they're, maybe it's because of me. Cause I can't teach them so far. All I'm going to say, it doesn't seem like football is for them. And I can tell you, and I'm probably said this before I've taken you and again, he's a child and it's probably going to change in the next year or two, whether he wants to do these things or not. I took him to a basketball camp at a local church, did not want anything to do with it. We sat down and he said, dad, everyone's so tall. Look how tall that girl is. I don't want to play. I took him to a tennis camp over the summer. We never even stepped on the court. We just looked outside. I didn't even get a chance to register. He goes, dad, that ball is moving way too fast. I don't want to do this. 
you know, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen there in terms of sports. I, the hardest thing for me is if he starts to pick up golf or something like that, like that would be karma, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they don't play sports at all. And I'm okay. Like I think any parent, you just want your kids to be happy and engaged in something to some degree. And if it's not sports and it's something else, great. I just want them to be passionate about something, anything. And and, you know, go down that rabbit hole. So that's where, again, I get in this eternal debate. If it is football, I'm like, fuck, <laughs> you know, what are you supposed to do? Punter, right? Kicker, maybe. Backup quarterback, a plus. Yeah. I think kicker would be great given your, like, you know, your golf background and you kind of know, like, you know, how, how it's got to move and all that stuff. Yeah, but you also need athleticism below the belt, below the waist. You know, still. You know, again, yeah, I don't know. Which gets me to martial arts. And we're enrolling our son in jujitsu. Now, if I had to do it all over again, and I did jujitsu for about seven, eight months, when Tony was really into jujitsu, Bourdain, I independently got into jujitsu and he was traveling all the time, but he would make sure that I was, once he found out that I was doing it, he would constantly make sure no matter where I was, because he's like, even if you're traveling, you can go to a jujitsu gym and roll. And he was very much an encourager of jujitsu. He was so fucking deeply involved in it. And independently, you know, I was doing it and Alex Atala is really good at it. And that's when I realized I was never going to be better than Alex Atala. So I didn't want to pursue it because <laughs> he choked me out. Alex Atala choked me out. It's not fun. Choked me out. That sucked. Being choked out sucks. <laughs> Let me tell you what. But my one regret is I wish I did that earlier. I wish I learned jujitsu earlier because it takes a lot of the things I love about wrestling. The, the it's chess against a human body, right? You're playing chess. That's really what it is. You have another individual that is constantly trying to find leverage and maneuver and positioning to beat you. And it's not just about know-how it's about training yourself to a, a specific point where you know how to have defense and offense. And if you're into that kind of competitive nature, as I am, it is extremely thrilling, exhilarating. You might get cauliflower ear, which sucks. But <laughs> other than that, as a kid, what I love about jujitsu more than any other martial arts, including Taekwondo. And again, I think like most Korean kids do Taekwondo, right? You almost have to, since it's the national martial art. And, uh, you know, my dad knew Jun Ree, who was instrumental in bringing Taekwondo to America. And I went to the Junri Academy. He lived in Virginia. And I, again, I think that it was really positive for me. I don't even know why I stopped it. Right. I did it for so long, but if I did jujitsu, I think I would have appreciated that more at a younger age. And I don't even think jujitsu was introduced at a, a level where you could do it at, at a local place. Cause almost every town, I'll say every town, many towns now have a jujitsu gym, but at the time there wasn't right. I remember my town, there was just kendo and uh, Taekwondo. And I wanted to learn Kung Fu so badly, but that was not available. And I would not have a choice. But the reason I think Jiu-Jitsu is more ideal is I don't want my son to be throwing punches. I don't want them to ever be violent. I want them to at least be armed with a choice to be able to self-defend oneself. And we talked about this with, you know, like, I don't want them to always turn the cheek. I want them to at least have the decision in the moment to be like, okay, help is not coming. This is now at a situation where it's not violence, it's self-defense as a last resort. And I think that jujitsu haven't been taken down by much smaller individuals than myself. It is fucking unbelievable to disarm somebody, to actually protect oneself. I just have the highest praise for it as a martial art. I, it's just beyond me that it was created and you have practitioners that are masters at it. I, I, I just have so much respect for it. Again, I would love for my son to learn that if he wants to, we're, we have, I had to move the first class because of all the stuff we have going on. I want to make sure that I'm there. And if it means that I have to pick up jujitsu again and do it with him, I will do it because it's a great workout as well. And it's all functional core strength and functional training. So it's, you're not lifting any weights, but man, you are sore as fuck. So I, I enjoy it and I will roll, I will do it with him if it means that he will do it. My, my concern is, with anybody that's into jujitsu these days, as it grows, the last thing I want him to do is to get into mixed martial arts. And jujitsu is the gateway to mixed martial arts. And nothing scares me more than ever being in a ring or in a situation with a mixed martial art professional, because that scares the fucking shit out of me. And the last thing I want is for my son to be like, I want to become an amateur mixed martial arts person. 
as much as I love it, as much as I love to watch it, it's not something I would want to have my sons do simply because of the potential risk for injury. So again, I understand the total hypocrisy and the contrary nature of that. But my belief without a lot of data is that if he becomes, if they become very good and proficient at jujitsu, I just don't think it stops there. I think you go straight into, well, I want to learn striking. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I think that's such a hard life, man. It's so hard. And I have so much respect for those fighters. So much respect. It is unbelievable what they are able to do and the amount of training and the amount of knowledge that they have to do. So on one hand, I love it. It's the last thing. On the other hand, it's the last thing I'd want my sons to get even involved with. And I could be totally wrong. Maybe it's not. But for many of my friends that have continued to do jujitsu, they're all trained to do mixed martial arts. What do you think, you know? I mean, let me stump for Taekwondo for a little bit. And I think it's because, yeah, there is punching and kicking involved, but there's also... There's a lot of things you learn in Taekwondo uh, as a Korean kid, especially a Korean-American kid. It's like the discipline, the kind of like, it's almost like a little mini, very light military school, right? Where you go in and they teach you how to take care of your uniform, make sure everything's straight, make sure everything's ironed out. When you go and you bow, all these like respect things that like maybe that structure wasn't really introduced anywhere else. And you really get a kind of foundation in that, which is why I'll stump for Taekwondo for sure. Because I did it, you know, obviously, you know, for many years and yeah it worked out for me as far as like being able to recall that and be like yo that is the real like discipline and structure that you need to make sure you keep throughout your life you know like things like making sure the corners are straight on your uniform and you know when you iron your shirts everything's real on point you know if you don't get it anywhere else in life that's a good place to at least get some yeah i don't know i'm sure malcolm gladwell or some anthropologist sociologist decided to do a study maybe it already exists but i guarantee you anybody that has done taekwondo for over a year that's probably the best grades they've ever had (laughs) for sure you know because you get brainwashed (laughs) but you ain't gonna win a fight with taekwondo bud oh for sure it's not it's not for fighting it's most taekwondo is for getting beaten up Oh, man. It's true. <laughs> Listen, Taekwondo is really not about kicks and punches, but it's the art of blocking. Is it not? It really is. And it's well, also for distancing, keeping distance. Again, I've used this joke many times, but every Asian country has distilled their nature and history into the martial arts. Thailand has never been invaded. Oh, I like this. It never. I like Even it. their food is a defiant stance against China. And it's so unique. And Muay Thai boxing is fucking rad. It's so cool. China literally has so many martial arts. It's insane. Literally created the Wu-Tang Clan. (laughs) I mean, China's martial arts is so fucking amazing. It gave us the Jizza, the Rizza, you God, Raekwon the Chef. It's so sick. That's how sick China is. I mean, Japan has ninjas and, and judo. It's, it's all about offense and like, uh, uh, it's just so cool. And if you understand Korean history, it makes sense. The marketing for Taekwondo over the past 50 years has to make it seem it's about striking. No, if you've done Taekwondo, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's about blocking. You block. It is the first hour of Karate Kid. That's all you do. And I think that tells you everything about Korea. We're getting invaded so much. We got to learn how to block this shit. <laughs> These guys keep, get, we're never going to beat them, right? All we can do is do a turtle ship and get to a stalemate <laughs> and we can block the shit out of your aggression. <laughs> Fucking knew the turtle ship was coming. And that is Taekwondo. And listen, I'm not, I can make fun because, come on. Part of the culture. But it, tell me I'm wrong here. <laughs> Nobody's telling you you're wrong, okay? If Koreans created Muay Thai instead of fucking Taekwondo, that would be fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, we'd take up half of modern-day Russia. Like, oh, yeah. my God. It would be so sick. I would be a Muay Thai. I would be a Korean, whatever the name would be called. If Taekwondo was Muay Thai kickboxing, I would become an, a professional, very bad professional Taekwondo artist today. I would never have stopped Taekwondo. I would have been knocked out 5,000 times <laughs> because it's so cool. Yeah, Muay Thai is the, is the king of the... It's the so art. cool. It's just so functionally. just. Awful. But we just block. It's all about form and blocking. Yeah. As you said, distance. Don't get scored on. Don't get 
kicked in the face with that spinning back kick kung fu shit. <laughs> Block it. <laughs> I'll take a break. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hey guys, I just have some random things I want to talk about. One is, I, I was at a restaurant called, do, did I pronounce this right? Borikogi? Gogi, what is that name of that restaurant? Borikogi. Borikogi. I was surprised to see how packed it was. Full of non-Korean people. They were Korean people. But it felt like this is the kind of food that your parents like to eat. And it's great. And I had to ask, why is it so busy? And almost everybody that I was with said because of TikTok and social media. And it, I think that makes sense because it's a really good value. But what I'm trying to get at is if you want to know what I think is going to really resonate with Gen Z and really younger millennials is a, the illusion of choice. And this one, it, it's different. It's an illusion of choice where you think you have choice. Everyone's eating the same thing, but you have the ability to customize it the way you want it for yourself. If you had to ask me what it is, probably besides ambiance, decor, location, having a menu where not the entire menu, but you have that option. Again, the illusion of that option to customize something to your liking is going to be paramount moving forward for restaurants that are not set pre-fee or, you know, trying to be super, super fancy high-end dining. But for restaurants that are, you know, go out with your friends and have a good meal, but it was so good. The kejang was good. The bosam was good. All the panjang was good. I thought it was great. It's my wife's like favorite restaurant. She goes there for lunch, but I've never been there for dinner. And she's been trying to get me to go for a long time. We finally went. I was so blown away at the options. So it's a set menu and they just crush you with, I don't know, probably like 20 different types of banchan, some jjigae and like real jjigae in the sense of, it's not really dengjang jjigae. It's like almost like chunggukjang, which is the extra strength, super fuerte dengjang jjigae. It's the kind of smelly that they're not watering anything down, put it that way. So it's like real Korean food. It's the most real Korean food that I've ever seen in America being served to a diverse audience. And it was very shocking for me to see a lot of people that were non-Korean eating real fucking, when I say real Korean food, it's the shit my parents want to eat if they were alive. Grace's parents want to eat. It's real. It's the kind of restaurant you would go to Korea at your local town, right? Or you're, you're, you're getting cooked like that. It's home cooking, sonmat, you know, hand cooking type of stuff. Extremely well done. I don't think anybody that started that restaurant thought it was going to create this kind of viral trend. It was a long wait to get in. And I was blown away to see that diversity in the restaurant. But it made sense to me that number one, it sort of checked all the boxes. The food's clearly good. It's not something that has a website, not something that you can find easily. So there's a sense of discovery. I think also very important. So food's good, sense of discovery. A little, I mean, what I mean by that too, left of center to some degree. It's not like your normal Korean food that you might get at a Korean barbecue place. The visuals of it are huge because once you finish ordering, it's like $30 per person. So super affordable and you can add on all the card things. You get bombarded with so much food right on your, just instantly. That is a blitzkrieg type of move that you might see in a lot of Korean restaurants, but this with the, the, the bowls and the silverware and the bamboo basket, it just has all the visual elements. It also has, it's another important thing that people may not always think about when they're trying to blitzkrieg a table. And something I learned over the years, you need to give horizontal depth and they have that. Whether it's an accident or not, it's all the food is like haphazardly done. And some of it's, it's got a lot of that meze feeling if you're in Istanbul. It has a connection of dining that I think in some ways probably like program into our DNA. And it is visually something that picks up so well on your phone. So the irony is this restaurant opened up without a doubt 
not trying to be any of those things. And that's what makes it so cool. I just don't know if you can replicate that. I don't know. Clearly you can, but I think what people may not be talking enough about is that illusion of choice, right? It's that thing that everyone's going to get. I know I've talked about it a lot, but it's, yeah, basically I'm just trying to say, I'm trying to pat myself on the fucking back here because I think my, my, my intuition has proven to be true on that. What do you think? You know, I mean, so this, this thing, just to explain for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, the Poribap Chung Shi is a, it's like a set menu with barley rice and they bring out a ton of panchan. And what's another thing that you missed it, that, that's big in LA, a lot of these dishes are vegan. Mm. Like people are going to be hot on these because like there's not a lot of meat in here. Okay? And not even fish. Super it's clean. Super clean tasting food. And also when I say like foods that my, our parents like, the older you get as a Korean person, you almost want no salt in it whatsoever. And I'm not saying that's not seasoned well, but it's a kind of seasoning that is light. It's super, as they say, super fresh, right? My mom would say, like super clean. Yeah. And everything was super flavorful, well cooked. I just thought it was great. But I would, I was, again, it took me the drive home to process like, oh, this kind of restaurant, whether it was intentional or not, which is definitely not in my opinion, has the perfect 2024, 2025 restaurant is in some way capturing the zeitgeist of what it means to dine out as a younger person today. So if you're looking for a restaurant, not that it needs more hype because it's so fucking packed, that is it. And I think you're going to see more versions of that. What That's what I'm saying. I think this sentiment of dining is going to become more prevalent. And the reason why I, I, I say that is we've had a lot of success with large format dishes, right? And I've seen, I have enough personal data over the years to see how people like to interact with that. It's why Peking duck is so popular. It's why large format fried chickens are so popular. It's why cocoa duck I know is going to be very popular. You have the visual element and you can, it's why caviar is so popular, right? It's, you can add a little, you can add a lot, especially you have the traditional caviar service. It's also why Chipotle is so popular because you can customize. It's also why In-N-Out is so popular. You have choice. You think you have agency, but you don't have fucking any choice. But it's it's an amazing job of convincing you and you do have choice. And I think that dichotomy, easy to say, right about, hard to actually execute. 100%. Dave, if I could add something, isn't it kind of refreshing that like these younger diners are challenging themselves with dishes like this? Like a Cheonggukjang or a... They ain't eating Cheonggukjang, man. I, I looked at enough tables. Nobody nobody. I, didn't, I mean... I mean, my table didn't even fucking eat. Because you don't want to be that table that orders. (laughs) You know, I've seen a lot of food trends over the years, but this is something that has been long seated many years ago, but it's now becoming, in some way, this kind of dining is going to be the NBA three-point shooting. It's just going to be what people do. It's easier for service because you can just pre-set up dishes and just go. So you can actually have your front of the house staff execute savory food that has already been pre-cooked. So you don't have to wait for garmanger. You don't have to wait for hot apps. If your front of the house server can just go, it gives you the the latitude that uh, like Brazilian Fogo de Chao have because the servers are the cooks as well. So if you're getting that hybridized merger of, it's almost becoming positionless to some degree, that's great for, for like a restaurant, right? And then it helps the kitchen. You don't need that many cooks, as many as you did before. Because you now have a buffer zone of food where people can nosh on, and it allows that cook to spend the time to properly make the 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 bosam or a chongul or some kind of big jige together and do it well. So I just think you're going to see more and more, and it's not going to just be Korean food. You're going to see this continue to proliferate in all kinds of cuisines. It's very exciting, but also a lot, a lot of I don't know. I hate to see the sameness hit everything. I had a great time. Great time. The other thing I wanted to ask or talk about is I have had this conversation with enough chefs. Food festivals, are they worth it? Are they worth it for the chef first and foremost? And if you're a chef that's listening, let's talk this out. You have a lot of food festivals in almost every state, but particularly New York, California, and Florida. Those are the big ones. I think it's a dilemma if you're an up-and-coming chef to do or not to do, Right. There's undoubtedly going to be a concentration of journalists and media and tastemakers that you'll be able to, you know, showcase your food to. But at the same time, they give you a budget. Almost all of these organizations give you a budget. So number one, you're not getting paid. You're getting free travel. And a lot of people say yes to doing these because you're like, shit, I'd love to go to this island 
I haven't had vacation in months and I can't afford to do that, but they're going to pay me. Maybe they even business class. I've never done that. That's amazing. And they're going to give me like a $2,000 budget and I got to cook. I got to do demo. I got to do two dinners or it's just like a, a buffet. I got to just put, you know, some kind of delicious dish on some kind of crappy bamboo plate and people are going to just pick it up and they're going to eat it. And then they're going to take the fucking food that they just ate, the empty plate and put it right down in front of me like a fucking motherfucker. You know, those, if you know what I'm talking about, it's the fucking worst, right? They eat it. Instead of throwing it away, they just put the garbage like right in front of you next to the, the fucking food you're trying to get out. Fuck those people. I understand the dilemma. I've been in those shoes. You, you're like, oh, well, I can take a break and like I can bring a sous chef or I can bring my significant other and we can have, but you never get that time off. You never almost get that to, to relax and to enjoy it. Number, and number two, right? Like you're doing a lot of work. And I think collectively as chefs, maybe we need to reorganize this to some degree. These organizers are making a lot of money. <laughs> they can't do it without you. So I think part of the negotiations, and maybe this is why I always keep on saying to our good friend, Chris Chen, he should start some kind of culinary agency, right? To negotiate on behalf of the chefs to get paid by these. They're doing huge numbers, folks. Huge, huge numbers. And all you're getting is an airfare that an airline is probably covering anyway, because they're getting the marketing and you're giving a limited budget. And oftentimes the what you're given is not enough. So I know this is true because it happens all the time. Whatever you do, you're actually like winding up in the red because you've had to pay for a variety of things. It's not all inclusive at the end of the day. I remember one time I was at an event. I'm not going to say who or where, but there was a snowstorm. Our flights got delayed. So we didn't have hotel rooms and we didn't have flights. They wanted us to pay for our hotel rooms, even though we had nowhere to stay. I was like, that's when I was like, fuck this. That was a long time ago, but I've never forgotten that. And you can do back of the math, back of the envelope math. I was like, they, they generated a lot of money. I, I think it's big business. It is big business. I also understand the need to do this because some of these events are absolutely, I wouldn't say essential, but it does help get your name out there. I just think at the end of the day, for most people that are trying to do these, you may want to ask yourself, I'm just telling you it's not worth doing. You may think so. I'm just saying it's probably not worth doing. That's from a culinary point of view. As a consumer diner, I don't know if it's worth it either. I'm not saying that or not. You know, uh, like Repair just did the Grand Cayman. I don't know how much that costs, but that's pretty awesome, man. You get full access. You got a lot of intimacy with the chefs so close by. You're really cooking your ass off. It's not an easy event because you're really working, but they, Eric's made sure that you are enjoying your time there. And it's pretty fucking fabulous. It's definitely one of the best ones by far. And I think that's an, a good example where it's work and play, but there are others because there's one every fucking week. I just don't know if, from a diner's perspective is if it's worth it, right? Secondly, because you're not getting the best of anything, right? Again, I always say it's like playing an away game. And I'm not talking about the cherries. There, there are some excellent ones, right? I'm doing one for, I, I'll, I'll do as many as I theoretically can. The charities I carve out of this, right? Because if we're just going to take money from super rich people to do that, fine. Like it does what it does. And it's a necessary thing, not an evil. It's a necessary thing. But everything else that's a for-profit venture, I got deep fucking problems with. Unless you pay them. The answer is simple. Pay them fucking ducats. And then everything's fucking copacetic. No chef should ever have to go to this event and have to pay out of pocket to make it complete. Full stop. Two more things I wanted to ramble on about. One is Ozembic. It was in the New York Times today. Sort of called it. Yeah, I just don't think people on in, in, that make food, sell food, are taking it seriously enough. Um, it's a growing. This is an existential threat to many food businesses. I just don't know if people are taking it seriously enough. So I don't want to, you know, make people overly paranoid, but it's changing people's eating habits and routines. And I think first it's hitting the snack industry hard, but I think it's definitely going to change how people dine out at restaurants. I don't know what happened to lunch sales. If it winds up that you basically are, are really only starving yourself or intermittent fasting till dinner, then I actually would think that a lot of lunch business slows down quite a bit. But that doesn't mean I can't tell you what restaurants are going to get hit or not, because it might mean that more people are going to eat extremely luxurious, decadent foods just in smaller portions. So maybe this is a, a boon to, you know, 
haute cuisine French dining. I don't know. But I don't know if people are talking about it enough. And I understand also we're in Los Angeles, but I also know New York is also like this too. But this is somewhat of a bellwether. And I think that you're going to see more and more people deal with this, especially if you have a health crisis on hand with obesity and all the health that comes with that. And maybe this is the best way. I don't know, but I'm surprised that it's not more of a larger conversation about dining habits and how does Ozempic affect restaurant ordering? Snack industry, fine. But I haven't, nobody's done any piece or research or analysis on how this changes people's dining out. I think it's going to affect it quite a bit. So wait and see on that. What do you think, you know? I mean, I've heard some reports that it might not be great for folks with, um, you know, mental health issues. I've, I've just seen like anecdotal evidence um, mostly, but I, I think it's something that they're looking into, which like, if that's the case, like, wouldn't you theoretically just go out less, you know, and just in general, like you're not going to meet up with your friends, do any of that. All I know is I've only have one friend that says they're on it. So he's, and he said like, oh, this food, be- it's a challenge. Can it beat Ozempic? Is the food good enough to beat Ozempic? Right. So to me, I was like, it's only one data point. I was like, man, so people are going to go for like super delicious, hyper flavorful things, I think. So we'll see. But I don't know what the fucking percentage was. Was it 2%? I can't remember, but it's it's growing year over year. That's for sure. Last thing as a random thought is a bone-in ribeye worth it in a restaurant. And I understand both sides. Visually, it's so stunning. But at the same time, like I love selling it because it's high profit and it's not high profit margin. It's a high ticket item. These are, things are also crazy fucking expensive. Dry age ribeyes with the bone in are very expensive. I am torn. As a diner, I love it. But also at the diner, I'm like, I'm also paying for that fucking bone. But visually, it's so stunning. Outside of the oxtail, there's no finer cut of meat, you know, than a big old ribeye. It's just, I don't know. These, these are the things I think about because if there's a ribeye on a menu, regardless of where I'm at, I'm always like, shit, I think I got to order. I think if you buy it, you should have the right to pick it up like from the bone and just eat straight off of it at the table. Like nobody, nobody can say anything. I know, but a lot of people won't do that. I just don't know. I'm really torn by it because I love it. I love it both ways. And it's not always a profit margin winner for restaurants. It really isn't folks. Unless you're some restaurants and you do like 8x the cost, but whatever. I'm interested to see because I thought we were a peak bone-in ribeye like four or five years ago. Totally fucking wrong. We are now entering peak bone-in ribeye, I think. Because <laughs> it's so fucking stunning on your Insta or your TikTok. It's just, I think a lot of this is the after effect of Salt Bay and all of this other shit. It just is now taking time for it to trickle down, but maybe 2024 is the year of the bone and ribeye. And my problem is I'll buy it every fucking time. Anyway, give us five stars. Check out uh, the new episodes of Chrissy and Dave Dine Out with Joel Kim Booster. And I'm not sure when this comes out, but uh, please support us on our new Netflix venture, Dinner Time Live with myself. And um, I think we are utilizing Discord again in this way of community engagement with the Netflix show. So you can sign up at majordomamedia.com and click on the link for your Discord and uh, probably find some technically computer savvy person to get you signed up because it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And engage with us on Tuesdays, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Netflix. (laughs) 